Hello, this is attorney David Papa, the personal injury guru. And on our show today, we are going to discuss the different types of trauma centers and the ERs that you may or may not have to go to after an automobile accident. And with me today is going to be an ER physician, Dr. Stephen Mitchell. And he's very experienced and he's going to be discussing these types of issues as to when you get taken from the ambulance into the hospital, what types of injuries you, injuries you that you have and what type of injuries need to be treated either by a physician, a nurse, or a doctor. He's going to go over a few different issues as far as the level of trauma centers and what each trauma center provides. We're also going to talk a little bit about COVID today. And the reason being is because it not only is it a hot topic, but I myself have experienced COVID. And I was probably out of work for about two weeks, and I had about 16 days where I was in isolation. And um, being an ER physician, Dr. Mitchell and I, we're going to talk generally about it. Uh, we're not going to get into statistics and details. We're just going to give everyone a little bit of a direct take on the seriousness of this virus. And anyways, you're watching the Personal Injury Guru Show. We'll be right back. This is the Personal Injury Guru Show with attorney David Papa. Welcome back to the Personal Injury Guru Show. And today we are going to be with a, an ER physician, and this is Dr. Stephen Mitchell. Hey, how are you? Hey, uh, Doc, tell us a little bit about your, your background in education and what you do for a living. Okay, so I'm a board-certified emergency physician. Um, I am from the Tampa Bay area originally. Um, and I've been a physician for about 20 years. Um, I did my medical school here in Florida at Nova Southeastern University in, in Fort Lauderdale, okay. and then did a residency, a four-year residency in emergency medicine in Philadelphia, and then I came back to the Tampa Bay area and started practicing. Very cool. Have to ask you, which is the best cheesesteak place in Philadelphia? You know, that, that's very Is it Geno's? Uh, is it? Know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I, I like Geno's. I, you know, I like uh, uh, the other facilities or locations, but um, I, I don't know. You know, were there a couple of places right up the street from where I lived that were pretty good? I don't even remember the names of them, but that's kind of where I focused when I was there. So. <laughs> Little sidestep. <laughs> Anyways, so. Um, what we typically talk about is, is automobile accidents and how people are impacted from the moment they're at the accident scene till the ambulance shows up. And of course, some people have to be taken to the ER. Um, talk a little bit about the ambulances when they arrive at the ER, the type of atmosphere it creates and kind of put us in a position where we kind of see nurses coming here and doctors coming over. It, it seems like a little bit of chaos, but as a, a paramedic once told me at an accident scene, it's organized chaos. That's right. Everyone That's knows right. their job. Can you kind of discuss that a little bit? Sure. So paramedics are very well trained. They're, they're trained to uh, triage people in the field. They're trained to initially treat the injuries in the field, and they basically prep the patient up for us uh, before they come into the emergency department. We have a huge amount of trust in what they do. Um, they're experts um, in finding out what's going on in the accident, trying to determine the level of injury of the patient, and then making a rapid triage to determine whether or not that patient needs to be at a higher level of care, a trauma center, or whether they can go to a community-based emergency room that perhaps is closer to the location of the accident. So uh, when those paramedics make that decision, they, it may be that the 
patients badly enough injured that they need a helicopter and have to be transported more rapidly to a trauma center in the area. Um, if they can go to a community hospital, um, then they transport them themselves. Um, or in their transport and here in the Tampa Bay area, um, at least in Pinellas County, we have a dual response. We have Sunstar Ambulance that's contracted with the county that responds as well as the city or county EMS unit. Mm -hmm. um, so generally speaking, you have four medics at just about every scene. Um, and uh, they'll make a determination, put the patient in the ambulance and transport to the hospital from there. Okay, and when the, as far as the hospitals themselves, and I never thought too much about this, but uh, until we talked before the show when we were talking about the different levels of trauma center. Can you kind of give us an idea of the different levels of trauma centers? Because not all ERs are the same. That's right. So essentially there are three levels of trauma center. Um, there, a level three trauma center is, and it's really based on the response time of the physicians and the capability that that level of trauma center can provide. Um, level three trauma centers you tend to see in more rural areas. They don't have as much capability as a two or a one, obviously. And it has to do with the response time and how long it takes to get a surgeon in, how long it takes to get a neurosurgeon in. Um, and some of the other capabilities. Um, we have three trauma centers here in the Tampa Bay area. We have um, Bayfront Medical Center in St. Petersburg, and then we have Tampa General Hospital in St. Joe's in Tampa. All three of them are excellent centers. Um, more seriously injured patients would be transported to those locations. And then again, there's protocols in place as to which one of those that they would go to, and that's decided by the, the medics and the dispatch teams in the field. Anything other than that that doesn't need a trauma center can go to a local community hospital um, and those are usually ground transported. Okay, so starting with um, the community hospitals, the locals, that would be maybe for sprains, strains, people not showing any serious symptoms that are being viewed by the paramedics then, is that right? Right, there are specific protocols, there, there are specific criteria that meet a trauma alert. And if a patient doesn't meet trauma alert criteria to where they need to be transported to a trauma center, then they would go to a local community hospital. Generally speaking, the, the, the hospital that's closest, sometimes hospitals are in diversion based on how busy they are and the medics may, the paramedics may make a decision to transport that patient to a hospital that's not quite as close as another hospital, but it, it's based on whether or not that hospital has the capability at that moment to handle that arrival. Okay, because I know from personal experience from clients, uh, some clients have been taken out of vehicles with the jaws of life. I've had, you know, uh, different patients that have had to use the helicopter to be transported. Um, and then I've had a lot of people that just go to these regular general hospitals where they just take x-rays, they, they monitor them, blood pressure, uh, some I guess maybe they take some blood things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Is that pretty much what they do? Sure, yeah, and, and, they're, and it could be that somebody gets sent to a trauma center based on the mechanism of the vehicle accident or whether or not there's other serious injuries in the vehicle. And so you may have a fatality in a vehicle where there's a second person that's really not injured much at all, um, but they would be called as a trauma alert perhaps if the medics make that decision in the field um, and transported to a trauma center even though they're not seriously injured. Um, but there is that there is that potential that they could be injured just based on the mechanism, and we have to be very cautious about that, and the medics are very cautious in the field as to, you know, really kind of look at the worst-case scenario and manage it that way, so. Okay, that makes sense, too, because someone could have a concussion and not really realize it, and it could right. be, a, they call them bleeders, which, if you right. can describe what they are a little bit. 
Right. So, so you can have intracranial bleeding. There are several different types of bleeding, and some of them are not as obvious. Um, you may have just a little subtle headache. You might have bumped your head a little bit, but there are risk factors that cause you to be more susceptible to having a, a little subdural hematoma or an epidural bleed. Um, so, and in those cases, um, you know, you want to be someplace that can manage those. Otherwise, you end up being transferred secondarily to those locations if you're at a community hospital that can't handle it. I see. Okay. All right. So, what what hospitals have you worked at in the past? Oh, I've worked at quite a number of hospitals. So, I've been a traveling physician for a while, and I've worked throughout the United States. So, I've been worked in Florida, Georgia, Missouri, Tennessee, Texas. I've been all over. So, And what's the purpose of that? Is that something that you choose to do or people ask you to come there because they're in need of help? No, I think, you know, we have shortages in physicians in various locations and depending on the type of work you do, we have to fill those. Getting a board certified emergency physician into emergency rooms and hospitals sometimes isn't easy. You need right. to make sure that there's the, the you know, enough physicians to do that and sometimes areas fall short um, and there aren't doctors that live in that area that are qualified and so physicians have to come in temporarily to fill in until you know the credentialing process to get a physician licensed and credentialed and up to speed takes three or four months to be able to actually start working in a hospital and so sometimes while they're in the process of hiring new physicians there are shortages and we travel to help fill those shortages oh that's excellent oh thanks for that service that's awesome Okay, um, a little bit more about when a, now an ambulance comes in with someone um, to you. If you're in a trauma center, say um, say uh, Tampa, up in Tampa, maybe Tampa General, and someone comes in, what's the first thing you do when you look at these individuals? Well, so you do a rapid assessment on them, generally speaking, and usually the triage nurse will do the, be the first look. Um, generally, we try to get to the patients as quickly as possible once they arrive. Right. We receive report from the medics. The charge nurse usually and the triage nurse together will um, receive the report. If the physician can join in on that immediately, they do. If they're tied up with another patient and can make it in there a few minutes later, they may get secondary report from the nurses. Um, okay. And then we do a physical examination after we've gotten good history and to make decisions on what treatments are going to be or what testing may be done and then what treatments are necessary. Okay for, for typical treatments I always hear when people go to the hospital a lot of people say they get CAT scans, they get MRIs. Mm -hmm. How do you determine what somebody needs? So again it depends on what the suspicion of injury is and so okay. when you when you go down and you listen to the symptoms you make a determination as to you know what you think might be wrong with them right. and form what we call a differential diagnosis in your mind and say I think this may be a possibility this may be a possibility I can rule out these things based on physical examination no it's probably not that based on the physical examination those things that are left open at the end you have to test to figure out if they're present or not okay and, and other than you I mean there's a team or is it just individual doctor like yourself watching this one patient or are there a group of people that come in to try to work together on this? No, it's usually a team. I mean, there's a, usually a nurse assigned. Um, there's uh, oftentimes a med tech or an assistant to the nurse that's assigned. Right. Most emergency rooms work in teams anyway. The uh, While you may have one nurse that's assigned to you, there are backup nurses that are also assigned to the team and step in to help out. And then you have charge nurse that's involved in managing the entire department and making sure that the flow works well. And it may be more than one physician. You could have physician extenders, um, nurse practitioners or PAs there helping the physicians as well. Um, so it's, it's collaborative. Um, we make sure that the patients have enough medical care for whatever their needs are. 
and we go from there. That's awesome because I know as, as many people as I know that have been to the ER, it's good to hear from your side of it as to you know the thought process that goes into it. Sure, it's quite different. Um, I want to switch a little bit uh, over the topic of COVID. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'm not looking to talk about the details and statistics nationally and what's been done, but I'll share with you that I had COVID um, in March and it lasted probably a good solid two weeks, maybe a little bit longer. And the symptoms that I had was I had the temperature, I had terrible body aches, the body aches were ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then in, all of a sudden the fever would break after a couple of days, I'm like, oh, thank God it's over. Then six hours later, boom, my stomach is burning. And then the next thing, my back is really hurting and I can't move my back. Then that goes away, then my legs the next day start hurting. This bug is nasty. It is. And I'll tell you, the worst part about it, tell me if I'm wrong, I'm sitting there and you have to isolate. So I'm alone in my home for about 16 days total. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, I hope it doesn't get worse than this because at one point I was coughing so much I couldn't get breath in good. So I'm saying, is this the breathing problem or is it just a cough and my oxygen level's okay? But it's the psychological part, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and, and the people that get sick, they get very worried about it. And obviously we we have enough knowledge to know that there are people that get very, very sick. and and. Um, once you hit that point to where you realize, hey, I've got this, and it starts to progress, and you get some of that inflammatory response, and you start having a little bit of shortness of breath, psychologically, you're, you're thinking, gosh, what's the end point to this? Right. I'm still on the rise, and is this going to be, and am I going to be one of those statistics? Am I going to be somebody that is one of the one in a thousand young people that has a very serious response or not, or is this going to get better and it'll settle down? And so right. you don't know, um, and it can be, be very scary. And it's very real, COVID. Um, I was a bit skeptical when I first heard of COVID and everyone's wearing masks and some people getting sick and some people weren't. Some people had for two days, some people passed away. Uh, but now that I've had friends on ventilators, some lived, some died, um, it's, it's horrific. And so I'm, when you're sitting there, like you said, it's the unknown. This isn't like the flu. No, the, you know it's so different. Well, I think there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of similarities in the response. I mean, we still have a lot of people that have died from influenza. I mean, I think we were at somewhere between twenty-five and thirty-five or forty thousand people dying of influenza annually. Um, a lot of those people were at at risk, obviously. So influenza is still a nasty um, disease, right. but. We've been dealing with flu for a lot of years, and there are a huge number of people that are vaccinated against influenza. I mean, most of us get our influenza shot every year. Right. And so, you know, we've abated a lot of the bad outcomes from that. Um, coronavirus was, at least this strain of it, was new to a lot of people, and it's pretty dangerous. And uh, whether you believe or not, it's up to you. Um, yeah. I know from my perspective, it's very real, and there are a lot of people that were, um, that probably would not have had a bad outcome from influenza that did have a very bad outcome. I I know people that have died that have had influenza a couple of times and never had a problem with it, but got coronavirus and ended up on a ventilator and died. Um, And I've worked in areas of the country where the death rate was so high that, um, you know, we had freezer trucks that were over full and we were going directly to direct incineration and burial. Unbelievable. It's terrible. It is. And I think that it caught us off guard and hopefully from, from people like us talking, I mean, as an ER physician, you certainly have seen this firsthand. Having, and I've seen it firsthand, and seeing friends have had it firsthand, and it's very, very serious. And the va- what do you think about the vaccinations? Have you been vaccinated? Or- I have been. 
Yes. Okay. And so I think it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a personal preference. And again, it's a yeah. risk-benefit ratio, really. I mean, <laughs> right. if, if you look at it, younger, otherwise healthy people are saying, look, I'm probably not going to have a problem from this. And they're probably right. Um, they'll if they'll be fine without it. And do right. they need the vaccine? You know, and do they want to take the risk of a potential side effect from a vaccine? We have we have side effects from all vaccines. I mean, there are still people that get other vaccines. They get the influenza vaccine, or they'll get the pneumococcus vaccine, and they'll end up with Guillain-Barre syndrome from it, or they'll have some other untoward um, event that occurs from it. The VIR system um, is the vaccine adverse events reporting system, um, if you look at any one of the vaccines, there are adverse events that occur from any of them. Um, this is just highly publicized and it's a new vaccine and, you know, and there are going to be some bad outcomes from the vaccine, no different than any other vaccine. But it, from my perspective, at my age, I'm at high risk for getting uh, a, or having a bad outcome from coronavirus. And for me, the risk benefit ratio was on the side of taking the risk of getting the vaccine. I'd rather take my, you know, lumps now than to have to potentially go through something serious later on. And I really felt that the risk for me for the vaccine was much lower than the risk of serious illness from coronavirus. Um, for some people, younger po- population, that may not be the case. They may right. feel that the risk is too high for them. And that's a personal choice. I mean, I, we can give them the data. You have to believe what you believe and move on. Right. And, and that's a great point because it is all individually based. Um, I will choose to get the vaccination or the booster or whatever I need after this um, because I don't want to go through what I went through. It's real. It's it's very dangerous. And for those of you who have not had the vaccination, look into it. It's up to you, but it's something to look into. Certainly, um, we've learned quite a bit today about um, the ERs and how they handle patients that come in, the different trauma units that take care of different patients, and how they all work as a team in a collaborative effort to make sure that everyone's okay when they come in from these accidents and they get the best help necessary. So. We hope that you've learned something today on the Personal Injury Guru Show. And uh, we did touch on the COVID issue, which I said we wouldn't. uh, We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Personal Injury Guru Show. And today we definitely touched on a couple of very important issues. The first one is when you talk to an ER physician, they tell you very clearly, as Dr. Mitchell did today, that everyone has a, a real joint group effort into this type of handling people that when they've been in automobile accidents. You've got the paramedics at the scene who make decisions with the dispatchers. The dispatchers talk to the hospital, the hospital are prepared. They find out what type of trauma that is going to be treated. Then they know what trauma center to send each patient to. And then of course you've heard how they get together in the ER as a team, make diagnosis, determine what tests to take to find out exactly you know, what type of injuries people have. Very important information. And uh, we thank Dr. Mitchell for that. We also touched on a bit of COVID issues. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't to tell anybody out there what to do. It's just, just be aware of it. And, and, and more aware than maybe some people have been in the past. I wasn't really, uh, I was a bit skeptical, not too aware of it at the beginning. And uh, after I caught it, I realized how, how serious it is. And it's not just the physical ailments, it's the psychological toll it takes, because you just don't know how bad it is going to get. And as Dr. Mitchell said, the death rate is very high in some areas. In other areas, 
people, some people live, some people die. We just don't know because it's a new strain. Um, as far as the show itself is uh, concerned today, I was very pleased with the information that came out. Um, and we are listening now. If you're listening on YouTube or watching it on YouTube um, or your favorite podcast, whether it be Google, Spotify, Pandora, or Apple, you can use those platforms. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or you think maybe that you can add to the show or you want to be a guest on the show, feel free to get in touch with me. Um, you know, you can get in touch with me through dpapa at papainjurylawyer.com or just Google Papa Injury Law and you will get me. Um, if you do like this, please hit the like um, button and also, um, you know, you can certainly share it and subscribe. We appreciate all that. Uh, and we'll see you on the next uh, podcast. Thank you.